0: chapter 40 as we continue in this journey of the psalms psalm 41 is the last book is the last psalm in the first book of the psalter there's five books in its entirety and there's a little bit of a shift in emphasis between the sections of books that we would find in here the superscription for the psalm has no indication of what period in david's life he may have written this. There is no other information. And as we read through this psalm, it seems as if David is looking back at something in his life. It could have been when he was on the run for his life. It could have been just a reflection of God's faithfulness to him all the days of his life. We're uncertain as to the circumstances that brought about this being penned. And as we're always reminded, this was sung in some form of worship, whether it be congregational for the temple worship or in David's individual life. So let's look at Psalm 40. We're just going to look at the first ten verses today. And here's what God's Word says to us. I waited patiently for the Lord, and He inclined to me and heard my cry. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay, and He set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God, Many will see and fear and will trust in the Lord. How blessed is the man who has made the Lord his trust and has not turned to the proud nor to those who lapse into falsehood. Many, O Lord my God, are the wonders which you have done and your thoughts toward us. There is none to compare with you. If I would declare and speak of them, they would be too numerous to count. Sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired, my ears have been opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have proclaimed glad tidings of righteousness in the great congregation. Behold, I will not restrain my lips, O Lord. You know. I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your loving kindness and your truth from the great congregation. So in these ten verses, we're going to divide this into five different sections, and this is quite a challenging psalm to divide up. There's a running together of so many different elements in this, and trying to find sections to work through was quite a challenge. But we'll look at these in five different groupings. The first one is this, the Lord delivers... When we talk about deliverance, especially in the Old Testament, and as it relates to David's life, we understand this physically, that David as a king, David being on the run for his life from Saul and from his son Absalom, was literally and physically delivered by the hand of God in some supernatural way. But we also need to understand that deliverance speaks of a spiritual reality that takes place within the lives of God's people, at the hand of God, His goodness, His graciousness, and His sovereignty. So we see this in a literal, physical sense, but we also have to understand this in a spiritual sense. So the first thing we see here is the Lord delivers, and as we look at verse 1, we need to be expectant. Whatever it is that we need to be delivered from, whether it is something physical, perhaps it's something emotional, spiritual, financial, relational, it could be any number of things, We need to expect for the Lord to deliver. Look how David pens this. He says, I waited patiently for the Lord. What does it mean to wait patiently? It means that there is a confident expectation that God is working even though we may not be able to see specifically the way that God is working. To wait impatiently implies a lack of trust or perhaps an unwillingness to allow God to do what He plans and as He plans. So we have a picture image here of David in a time of great distress, as we see in verse 3, sitting quietly in a chair, his legs crossed, his arms relaxed, a look of expectancy on his face that God at any minute is going to come in and deliver him. And do what he is ordered to do in David's life. Well, the opposite of this picture is someone who is pacing frantically. They're constantly looking at their watch. They're muttering under their breath. And there is a great look of frustration on that individual's face. It's an incredible contrast that we can see in waiting patiently and being very impatient in the process of waiting. Now, I've asked you this many, many times. How many of you like to wait Nobody likes to wait, not for anything, whether it's a red light or a series of red lights because they've done construction around where you live and there's 25 cars and only six or seven can go through at a time. And so we sit impatiently, don't we? Or a long line in the grocery store or at Walmart. We sit there and we wait and we wait and we wait and we get this look of frustration on our face and it begins to manifest itself in the things that we say and in the attitudes that we have about the individuals who are causing us to wait. That's my experience anyway. So when we're waiting on God to do something, the likelihood is that we will impose upon God this frustration, this feeling of uncertainty, this wondering, perhaps even the anger, that God isn't doing more, and He's not doing it as quickly as we would like, and so we get very, very impatient And waiting for God to do what it is He wants to do. Now, if you remember, David was told he was going to be the king of Israel, and he had to wait 14 years before he actually got on the throne and ruled as king. Talk about waiting patiently. Perhaps David is thinking of this long gap in his life where he had to wait on the Lord, and he says, I waited patiently. He had this expectancy that God was going to do what He desired to do. So you and I must never lose faith because God hears. When we are waiting patiently, when we are needing God to do something on our behalf, we need to remember that God hears. Verse 1b, David says, And He inclined to me... And heard my cry. I waited patiently for the Lord and he inclined to me and heard my cry. So notice the response of God towards us. He inclines himself to us. And what that literally means is that God turns towards us and gives to us his attention. God does this all the time. When we think God isn't looking, when it feels like God isn't paying attention to what's going on, when we are crying out, God inclines himself to us and he hears. This is an intentional act on God. It isn't God acting in his omniscience. It isn't him acting in his omnipresence. God is intentionally turning himself towards you. Remember several weeks ago, we talked in one of the Psalms about how God's, Face is set against the evildoer that God's eye is on his children. That's the same idea here, is that when we cry out to God, he turns towards us and he hears. God knows it all, he sees it all, he hears it all, and he responds to those who cry out to him in his time. Our trust in God should result in a quiet confidence That God indeed has heard us, and He has not forgotten about us, and He's not ignoring us, but He has a plan and a purpose that you and I know very little about. And so we exude trust as we wait patiently for God. As we wait, as we cry out, He hears, and then God will respond. Verse 2, "...He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay." And he set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. Now, as you read through this, as we think about deliverance in a physical reality, and as we think about deliverance in a spiritual reality, what a great picture of salvation we have here. We cried out to God. He hears us. He rescues us from the pit of sin and the destruction of hell. And he places us on the rock. Our feet are firmly on the rock the chief cornerstone who is none other than Jesus Christ our Lord. This is a great and simple picture of salvation that David has painted for us as he has waited patiently on the Lord, trusting that God is going to work and understanding that God will respond for him. So as we respond to him, so as we think about David waiting patiently, having this expectancy that God is going to work, he describes his present circumstance. He's in a pit. It's like being in a pit. He's in the miry clay. He can't get himself out. He is completely hopeless apart from the work of God in his life. This pit of destruction brings to mind an empty well that has no water, but only a thick layer of mud, which makes climbing out absolutely impossible. Joseph was thrown into an empty well by his brothers and was left for dead. When the people didn't like the message of Jeremiah, what did they do? They tossed him in a well. Verse 30, chapter 38, verse 6. Then they took Jeremiah and cast him into the cistern of Malkiwa, the king's son, which was in the court of the guardhouse. And they let Jeremiah down with ropes. Now in the cistern there was no water, but only mud. And Jeremiah sank into the mud. What would be your experience In a deep pit, sinking in the mud, waiting patiently on the Lord. You see, it's a spiritual discipline that we have to have to wait against our natural instinct to be anxious, to worry, to take matters into our own hands. The picture here is David is in a life-threatening situation. He's at the end of himself. He has nowhere to look but up. And he is waiting patiently for God to respond and to do what only God can do. It's a lesson for us. There's so much in our lives that we cannot control. And yet we wring our hands. We rack our brains in worry with anxiety. We get ulcers. We get distressed. There's so little that we can control. And all we can really do is sit patiently, cry out to the Lord, and wait for Him to do what only He can do. You see, when we go through difficulties, hardships, circumstances, unwanted things in our lives, there is a process that God wants us to go through. There is a journey that we're on spiritually where God captures our attention, He teaches us something about Himself, He teaches us something about ourself, and the end result is a greater and deeper trust in God. That's what's supposed to happen. So David is waiting patiently on the Lord to do what only he can do, And we come to the second section here, and that's this. We should praise Him. Because of God's deliverance, because of the expectancy that we have in God doing what only He can do, we should praise Him. His faithfulness to us should always result in our praise of Him. Not just with our words, but from the depth of our hearts. Verse 3a. David says, He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. So the words we speak and the songs that we sing are to flow from our heart. Not just lip service, but a genuine connection with a real God who has given real deliverance to a real problem in our life. Matthew 15, verse 18, Jesus said, the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and these are the things that defile the man. So our Songs of praise are to flow from our hearts as we communicate back to God with thankfulness, with a deep sense of gratitude, with a humble dependency, a majestic sense of awe and wonder. That's what our worship is supposed to be like. I've always wondered why it seems there's so many within a congregation that can stand there and just barely move their lips or not move their lips at all in the middle of worship. I've actually heard people say, well, you know, I really don't get into worship. I like preaching. That's real good. But worship's just not my thing. Well, worship is an avenue for us to express to God our love for Him, our thanks to Him, our need for Him. And so this is the idea, is that our worship is to come from our hearts, not just from our lips. And as we think about the deliverance of God, as we think about the gift of salvation from God, This should result in a constant praise of God. For each thing that God has done for us, we should praise Him. If we were faithful to do that, the praise of God would continually flow from our mouths because our hearts are set on thanking Him, reflecting on His goodness towards us, and every time God brings something to our mind, we articulate that in some way. A prayer, a song, a verse a journal entry, some way that we express from our hearts the praise and adoration we have towards God for what it is He's done for us. The always present praise of God is reflected in this phrase, a new song that God has given to David. David isn't relying on the golden oldies. He's talking about a new song that comes to him based upon a new insight, a new work, A new understanding, a new aspect of deliverance, something that has happened in David's life, causes him to sing a new song to the Lord. It's reflected, this new song is reflective of the continual work that God does in the lives of his children. I'll give you an example of a new song. Take a listen. The song is called, Is He Worthy? by Andrew Peterson. And I can assure you that that song came from a personal experience with the Lord. Some insight, some deliverance, some something inspired him to write those words. And it's a new song. It's a way for us to express our love and our praise and our adoration for God in a new way. So there's a new song that God has given to David so that he could praise him and as we praise him, others will hear. Many will see and fear and will trust in the Lord. You hear that? Our praise, our new song, our expression of love and adoration for God will result in others seeing and others fearing and others trusting in the Lord. When God gives to us a victory, spiritually, emotionally, relationally, whatever it might be, it becomes, an, it becomes an opportunity for us to praise Him before others and potentially get others into an understanding of the great God that we know and love and serve, the faithfulness of God to meet the needs of His children. We don't know how God will use our praise of Him in the lives of, of other people. But the invocation is very, very clear here. Others should hear about the faithfulness of God that comes from our lives. This, by the way, is one of the easiest ways to share the gospel with somebody else. We share the gospel by telling others how God has met my deepest need. The work of God in our lives is not to be a private affair and many, many people want to make religious experience totally private others should know about it so that their knowledge and their experience with god can be impacted and deepened and enlarged in such a way that they want to know this god even more i believe that's what happens in these new songs it enriches our understanding of who god is and it gives us another opportunity to express our love for God. Well, others are going to hear our praise, and as a result of that, they're going to know that we trust in Him. Verse 4 reads, How blessed is the man who has made the Lord his trust, and has not turned to the proud, nor to those who lapse into falsehood. So the reality is this, we are either going to trust God when we're waiting patiently, when we're up against it, or we're going to trust someone or something else. We might trust in ourselves. We might trust in the government. We might trust in education. We might trust in the economy. There's any number of things that we can trust in, but it's really a choice. It's either going to be God or it's going to be something else. The expectation here is that the children of God are going to trust in Him and they will not turn to anyone or to anything else. And that is why David says, "...how blessed is the man who has made the Lord his trust." He trusts in the person, the character, the nature of God. This is what we are to trust in. We trust in His methods. We trust in His plans. We trust in His purposes. We trust in His timing. We trust in His eventual deliverance because we believe that God is faithful. Because we believe that God is faithful, we can run this back up the chain and say, I should be able to wait patiently because I know that God is always faithful. So there's a bit of a contrast that is stated here. We put our trust in the Lord or we'll turn to the proud. And in this instance, the proud would be an individual who has no need for God. They can do it all on their own. They've got all the answers. They've got all they need. Nothing's too difficult for them. Or the option here is to turn to those who lapse in the falsehood. This probably refers to those who would be guilty of idolatry, those that worship false gods. But it isn't limited to that. You know, I don't know any of you who have some kind of an idol in your home that you go by and you make some kind of a gesture or you bow the knee. But I can guarantee you that all of us have something in our life that is vying for first place. There's a constant challenge to keep God on the throne, to make Him first of everything all the time. But there are other things that creep into our lives that can become like an idol, even though there isn't anything fashioned like an idol in our home. Everyone is guided by some source of truth or by some sense of truth in their life. Everybody. There is no exception. This sense of truth can be called a worldview. A technical definition of a worldview is this. Fundamental cognitive, affective, and evaluative presuppositions a group of people make about the nature of things and which they use to order their lives. So we're going to order our lives around something, and the option option that we have here is it's going to be the truth of God and his word, or it's going to be something else, the proud or those who lapse into falsehood. There's no shortage of worldviews in our life, in our world. There'd be far too numerous to recognize. And so this source will either, the source that guides our lives will either be centered in God or it'll be centered into something else. And if it's centered into something other than God, then it's automatically considered to be falsehood. We're warned about this in the book of Colossians, chapter 2, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world rather than according to Christ. I didn't think about this for an exceedingly long amount of time, but we could probably trace pretty much every other worldview into the tradition of men or the elementary principles of the world. So those are the options we have. It's either our source, this sense of truth or source of truth that guides us is either going to be in God or it's going to be in something else. And if it is, then it's going to be based in falsehood. So our praise of God expresses to the world around us that we trust Him. And this brings us to the third section in our outline. That is this, the Lord blesses. So the Lord delivers, we should praise Him. The Lord blesses. David thinks back on all the times that God has delivered him and the nation of Israel. Think about the way God has delivered the nation of Israel all throughout the Old Testament narrative. He has blessed with miracles. God has intervened in such a way that the outcome can only be explained by the hand of God. Verse 5a, Many, O Lord my God, are the wonders which you have done and your thoughts toward us, there is none to compare with you. That word wonders here indicates that these are divine acts, miracles, that could only be attributed to God. It's the same sense in the New Testament where they perform many signs and wonders. Things that men could not do. Things that only God could do. And so Israel's history is filled with the divine acts of God on their behalf. All the way in the very beginning from the very calling of Moses... When God appeared in the burning bush to the end of Daniel where he was spared from harm while he was in the lion's den. All between, God continually worked these acts of miracles on behalf of his people and intervened in such an obvious way. So these wonders are the result of God turning his thoughts toward us. So if we are crying out and if we need deliverance and God inclines himself to us and turns toward us, he's now thinking of us and acting on behalf of what we've cried out for and what it is God sees that is taking place. God's thoughts toward us, God inclining himself to us, should be an incredibly amazing thought for us. Do you ever remind yourself that God thinks about me? That you and I are on the heart and mind of God? Do you ever think of that? Should that make any difference in how we experience the difficulties and the hardships in our life? His works in our lives is evidence that God is thinking about us. What God does in your life, what God does in my life, is an evidence that God is thinking about us. So these divine wonders that David is reflecting on are far too numerous to even count. He says in the latter half of verse 5, If I would declare and speak of them, they would be too numerous to count. You know that old hymn, Count Your Blessings, Name Them One by One, can you ever exhaust all the ways that God has blessed you? You know, the reality is is that God has blessed us in ways that we aren't even aware. We we know about the great big things, the the life-capturing things, but the little things that God continues to do on our behalf that we don't even give a thought to, we could never number, we could never even identify all the ways that God has blessed us. If we tried, we would certainly overlook something, wouldn't we? And that's the reality. God is so good and so faithful and blesses so abundantly that we couldn't even identify all the ways that this would be true for us. God blesses us and does more for us than we are even aware. I believe that God protects us from things that we aren't aware He's protected us from. That's just God. God. There's been times when I've left the house and I've forgotten something, had to go back, and then get in the car and go. And I have on occasion paused and wondered, did God cause me to forget that, to save me from something in the road that was inevitably going to happen? I don't know. But I believe this. God protects us and blesses us in ways that we aren't even aware. Truly, there is none like him because he delivers because He is praiseworthy, because He blesses us so generously. Number four in our outline. Because He blesses us, we should commit to Him. Committing to God is really the supreme expression of trust in the life of a believer. You can take the physical clenching of the fist and letting go saying, I trust God. That's the supreme example, is I will commit my ways to Him. I will cast all my cares upon Him. I will let go and let God be God. So committing to God is the supreme expression of trust, not externally. And we see this mentioned here in verse 6. Sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired. My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering... You have not required. Now, in the midst of David's life, they were still operating under the ceremonial and the sacrificial system that was established for the nation of Israel all the way back in the book of Exodus. This is not a commentary about the sacrificial system. He's not saying that these integral elements of worship should be set aside. In fact, it's most likely that in David's experience, He has already performed all of the sacrifices that would have been been required of him as a king and in his worship of God. What he is saying is that these external acts were not necessarily that which really pleases God, even though he has prescribed it. An external commitment to observe rituals is very, very easy to do, and that's not what God desires. Now think about it. It's an easy thing to get up and to put your clothes on and to come to church and to sit here and sing a few songs and listen to a guy talk for a little bit, maybe throw a few bucks on the plate, and then walk away. It's easy to do that, right? That is an external commitment that is devoid of any significant commitment to the Lord. Attendance is one thing. The internal commitment to God is something very, very different. The same sentiment was expressed in 1 Samuel 15. Samuel said, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Well, the answer to that question is absolutely not. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. What Samuel was saying, as valuable and as enriching as this act of worship is in these sacrifices God desires our obedience even more than He desires that act of obedience in sacrificing to Him. When David says, My ears you have opened, it's an indication that he willingly desires to give all that is required of him. Not externally, not in the ceremony, but internally. David says in verse 7, Then I said, Behold, I come... In the scroll of the book, it is written of me. So David is acknowledging what is written about him in the Old Testament law regarding his role as the king of Israel. So we're going to read a lengthy passage in the book of Deuteronomy, beginning in chapter 17, verse 16. And here's what it says about the duties of the king that David prescribes. Moreover, he, the king, should not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return that way. He shall not multiply wives for himself. David missed that one, didn't he? So did Solomon. Or else his heart will turn away, nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. Now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priest. That's the scroll David is likely referring to. Verse 19, it shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or the left so that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. This is what is prescribed for the king of Israel and this is what David is acknowledging has been written about him and he says, God, my ears are open to that which you've written about me and I am willing to do all that you've called me to do. This commitment that David makes centered on obeying all that God instructs of him. That will not come from an external observance of ceremony and ritual. It only comes from a significant internal commitment to obey the Lord. Those who diligently observe the external aspects of worship may in fact have a heart that is not truly set on the Lord. That means in our midst... And in churches all around this world, there are very likely people who attend who don't really have a significant internal commitment to obey the Lord. This was a problem, this was a reality that was in the nation of Israel from the very beginning. When Moses was up on Mount Sinai getting the revelation of the Ten Commandments, Aaron and the rest of the people were fashioning a golden calf to worship And acting out in all sorts of revelry. They'd just come through. They'd just passed through the Red Sea. And here they are, acting as if they were totally ignorant of God's call on their life and His provision to deliver them from certain death at the hand of the pursuing Egyptian army. Jesus constantly battled with the Pharisees in his day about the external observance of the rules and the rituals and the ceremonies and they're being devoid of any significant commitment in their life. In Luke chapter 11, verse 42, Jesus says, But woe to you Pharisees, and when Jesus says woe to you, He means woe to you, for you pay tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb, and yet disregard justice and the love of God. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You see, the Pharisees had an external observance of the Lord without any internal commitment to him so we must always be careful that we are not guilty of just an external commitment by being here but that we possess an internal commitment expressed by obeying him verse 8 David says I delight to do your will O my God your law is within my heart David delights to do God's will. It's a joy. It's a pleasure. It's something that he is happy to do. It's not a burden. It isn't a sacrifice. It is the natural response of the one who has delivered and the one who has blessed so richly is that we should be willing to delightfully obey Him. This brings us to the last section in our outline. Number five, we should proclaim Him. He delivered, we praise. He blesses, we commit. We should proclaim Him. For all that God has done, we should publicly proclaim Him. He is good news. God Himself is good news. Verse 9, I have proclaimed glad tidings of righteousness in the great congregation. Behold, I will not restrain my lips, O Lord, You know. Glad tidings here. Is an expression that means to bring good news when the angels appeared to the shepherds who were tending the flock on the night of Jesus birth, they said in Luke chapter two verse ten, Behold, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy which will be for all the people It's the same phrase here in the psalm as it is in Luke chapter two. David says that I am going to proclaim the great news of His righteousness amidst the great congregation. The righteousness of God here is celebrated as a possession of Israel, received and experienced, as the result of God's deliverance. It's the exact same way that you, would under, you and I would understand the impugned righteousness of God in our life. It is His righteousness, not our own, that comes to us as a result of our salvation. So this corporate act of deliverance that David is looking back upon at, at the hand of God for the nation of Israel is an indication of God's righteousness being Impugned upon the nation of Israel. This is developed a little bit clearer in verse 10. So, just as the praise of God in verse 3 is declared publicly, so is the righteousness of God amongst the people. The great congregation may be a great congregation who is assembled for worship, and may also mean the entire nation of Israel. David saying, I will proclaim the righteousness of God for all the nation of Israel to hear. David says he will not be silent about what God has done. He will not be silent about who God is. He is not to be a secret. He is good news. He is not to be a secret. Verse 10, I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your loving kindness and your truth from the great congregation. David saying again, that he is telling all the nation of Israel about who God is. So the words used in this verse are to be understood as a corporate experience and truth for the nation of Israel. These are central to God's character and his covenant with the nation of Israel who are reserved and are reserved for them as God's chosen people and for those who enter into relationship with him. So here's the words. David speaks of God's righteousness In his heart, not a righteousness of his own, but of God's. He speaks of the faithfulness of God that he has experienced. He speaks of the salvation from God that he and the nation has experienced. He speaks of the loving kindness of God for himself and for God's people in general. All of these are indicative of the character of God and the covenant that God has made with His people. The good news proclaimed in verse 9 is the gracious work of God on our behalf that enables us to know Him. He is good news and He is not to be kept a secret. He is to be shared with others, most especially those who are struggling in the faith so that they can have a growing trust in Him these terms that we throw out, righteousness and salvation and faithfulness and loving kindness, these are central to our worship, they are central to our teaching, and they are central in the lives that you and I are to live as those who have been benefited by the deliverance that God has made available to us. Who God is and what God has done for us is to be at the center of, of our lives. It's reflected in our willingness to obey Him and to see that as a delightful thing to do. He delivered us. We should praise Him. He blesses us. We should commit to Him. We should proclaim Him. We should share the good news of who God is amongst the congregation God forbid that it be true of any church that God is not center in our worship and our teaching in the object of our lives. Sadly, that's not the reality in far too many churches. You and I live our lives in the tension between knowing in our heads who God is, having a past experience of the faithfulness of God, and the tension of what we are going through in the now, what we're being led astray to pursue in the now. We've not been delivered from the presence of sin. It's an ever-realistic re- pull in our lives, but God is faithful. God, is, God has overcome the world, and He enables us to do that as well. He delivers, we should praise Him. He blesses, we should commit to Him. And as a result, we should proclaim Him. Would you pray with me? Father, would you continually remind us of all that you've done for us? And it isn't just reserved for the gift of salvation. It should be expressed through every facet of our life. We all experience difficulty and hardship. We all go through unwanted circumstances. But none of that ever changes. Your faithfulness, your loving kindness, your righteousness, and the salvation that we have from you. God, even now, would you speak to our hearts about that which pulls us away from giving to you what you desire and what you deserve? Would you draw us close to the cross? Would you draw us close to your mercy and your grace? That we would walk our daily lives in the shadow of the knowledge of the great God that you are. Would you do that as we desire to honor you with the lives we live? We pray these things in Jesus' name.